this time on Waters of Tomorrow, Fast Times on Planet of the Landmines. I am Gepwin. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review, critique, whatever philosophy show. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week, we watched a very weird Star Trek, the original series. I think it involves some sort of, like, massive computer corporation, but I'm not sure. Yeah, something about that. (laughs) It's named after a fruit that grows on a tree and is often inaccurately ascribed to biblical stories. Yes. (laughs) We, of course, watched the original series episode of the second season called The Apple. Star Trek takes on uh, Adam and Eve? Sort of, yeah. Certainly seems to be. Eden places... Wait, haven't we already been to a paradise planet like a couple times? Twice, at least, yeah. (laughs) It's, in fact, very, very similar to the paradise planet we had in this side of paradise. Everyone's super groovy and everything's fine, man. And Kirk can't stand it. Yep. <laughs> Though in this case, there is a little bit of something else going on. So uh, Yeah, hmm. but they don't explain it well enough for us to know what it is. But it does provide some opportunities to ask some questions that aren't well answered because things get kind of caught up in the action. Yeah, for, for what you can call action at any rate some phasers involved anyway (laughs) (laughs) this episode was written by max elrich uh who wrote a book called the reincarnation of peter proud which was also later turned into a movie of the same name i can't say i've ever heard of that actually yeah i'm very unfamiliar with that other writing credits are tv shows things like that most of which i've never heard of either so yeah he was not unknown at the time but he doesn't seem to have stuck around in the general consciousness the same way that some other contemporary sci-fi writers have yeah plus he kind of you know died in like early 80s so you know not not something i maybe you know not not a producer material that i'm necessarily more familiar with we have quite a few rather nameless guest stars on this episode but your main two are the new pretty yeoman who Mm -hmm. is played by Celeste, Celeste. Yarnall. <laughs> Yar- Celeste Yarnall. Celeste Yarnall. Yep. Isaac <laughs> uh, is trying to save me from a bad read. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. I'm here to help. <laughs> she is playing Yeoman Martha Landon, which is easier to say than her real name. Yes, uh, she shows up in a uh, you know, bunch of random TV shows. Uh, Including some like more recent stuff involving Star Trek, um, like a TV movie, apparently. Yeah, one of the fan movies. Uh, she originally debuted on a show called Ozzy and Harriet, and also was in the original film The Nutty Professor in 1963. So, uh, you know, a long career so far. It's still going. Yes. One of the uh, probably better actors we've gotten in the yeoman positions yeah. overall. The other guest star is playing the uh, point-of-view sort of alien. His name is Kenneth Andes. Uh, he plays Akuta. But not Akuta Matata, just Akuta. He was on radio, TV, stage, did a lot of things, including uh, guest starring on episodes of Sea Hunt and The Rifleman. More shows I've never heard of. <laughs> Rifleman uh, had seen 
because it was my dad's favorite show when he was a kid and he showed me some videos of it and it is just awful well you know that's, that's what you got at the time i guess mm-hmm. it's a western and the guy has a rifle that is literally the plot i guess you know, you know every like other show on you know in the you know the 50s and 60s was basically a western so yeah but i don't understand what was so special about him having a rifle like you know everyone else on tv because all the other cowboys had six shooters, so you had to be like a little closer up and personal. Well, this guy could shoot you from far away. Yeah, it's like impressive, I guess. Yeah. So, so that means he's the sniper of the old west. <laughs> <laughs> we do have quite a few other characters running around. We have like four red shirts in this episode. Who I'm not going to bother to name. Yeah, we'll mention them when they die. <laughs> Fifteen or so aliens. This one's weird for me we're gonna go through the synopsis in a second but like it the imagery it's using is a little weird everyone's painted red for some reason you know, like uh, i guess at least they look a little bit more alien than some of the aliens we've seen in the past but it's it's weird it's, it's still, they're not necessarily doing red face here but it kind of feels like red face yeah it does and there's just this thing that i i couldn't think of a good way to work it into the synopsis without breaking up the flow too much but every time Kirk wants everyone on the crew to get together, he just yells all hands in a weird way, and it becomes too repetitive to not be noticed. <laughs> all hands, get over here as quick as possible. We're, we're about to die. The awkwardness of the framing of these scenes cannot be easily conveyed in the synopsis because you're, you're working on this soundstage set that looks like it's about 10 feet by 10 feet. Yep. <laughs> it's filled with random jungle plants and sand and the crew keeps spreading out it's like spread out and look for stuff but because they're on like a 10 foot by 10 foot soundstage they go about a foot in each direction and then kirk yells all hands and then they all come back a foot or two to be <laughs> next to kirk step forward yes <laughs> yeah which is just like they can hear like you could talk normally at any sort of volume and they are three feet away from you like, this is normal conversational range. What, what if Kirk is, like, slowly losing his senses and he thinks everyone actually is gone? That could be. I mean, <laughs> this is after the point that uh, William Shatner got actual permanent tinnitus in one ear from the being too close to an explosion in the arena episode. Oh, so I, I guess he's, uh, you, know, you know, less perceptive as an actor. So there's some random, random trivia for you from then. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right, then. Kirk, Spock, Chekhov, McCoy, Landon, and four dead men walking beam down to explore what they describe as an idyllic garden world. Yeah, it's it's very uh, orange skies and uh, plants everywhere. And very small. Chekhov makes a this-is-just-like-Russia joke, which is going to become a running thing with him. Yes, uh, it's it's. I, I recall. Um, uh, I think it was Cal Calgarin uh, who did a video about uh, the uh, Shakespeare and Star Trek. Uh, that it's sort of, you know, in uh, the undiscovered country, uh, the the Klingons make it sound like Shakespeare is a Klingon author, <laughs> and so it's like it's it's basically a, you know take on the same joke you know in the in the, in the movies there, and that's sort of. You know, one of these sort of weird running gags that I'm not sure if it's really started here, but it is it was very much popularized here that the random Russian person taking credit for whatever. 
Yeah, I'm I'm too separated from the Cold War stuff to know whether this was some weird stereotype they had about Russians. I wouldn't be surprised if it was. Uh, d- anyway, Chekhov concludes that the Garden of Eden was actually located just outside of Moscow. The for reference, most biblical scholars tend to agree that it was somewhere in the Middle East around Persia. So uh, modern day Iran, perhaps Iraq, Kuwait, um, Azerbaijan, Armenia, uh, Turkmenistan, maybe. One of the guards sees a weird looking flower turn slowly towards him and then explode and shoot a bunch of poison tipped darts into his chest, killing him immediately. Oh, no, it's Day of the Triffids all over again. Kirk orders that they beam up the body, and that is when Scotty informs him that something's draining the ship's power, but obviously it's nothing to worry about. Just ignore me. Yeah, we've got massive problems up here, Captain, but you're cool. Spock detects some sort of artificial machinery located under the planet's surface, and Kirk orders them to continue into a village that they know is nearby, which apparently is very far from where they beamed in, because this takes them a good long time. Mm -hmm. In fact, like the first half of the episode is just them wandering around the forest. Yeah, in a very aimless, weird fashion. (laughs) Going from set to set that is just the same six plants moved around to different places. (laughs) Spock also detects that there is a humanoid tracking them, but they don't do much about it at this point. Someone creep. Chekhov flirts with Landon. Apparently they have a pre-established relationship, which makes this actually the least creepy of the flirting scenes. It's still a little creepy, but it's less creepy. So It's yeah. mostly creepy because she's upset that someone just died in front of them. Yes. And he goes, like, oh, but I've been waiting to get you alone for so long. Chekhov, uh, read the room. Kirk interrupts the lovebirds and informs them that they are being watched and they all need to move out single file very awkwardly through a gap in the side of the set. (laughs) I cannot convey how awkward them moving around these sets is. All right, so so how many people we got here? We got like seven, eight people or something like that. Yeah, and a set that seems like it could fit two comfortably. (laughs) All right, everybody, stand close together, but act like you're far apart. As they walk, Spock finds an unusually flat rock that is made of some really cool minerals, apparently, and then he breaks it apart just like it's made of like styrofoam or something. Yeah. These minerals are made out of styrofoam. How weird. (laughs) He casually tosses half of the rock aside where it explodes. Kablammers. This is the second randomly deadly normal looking thing they've found on the planet so far. Yes. Yet they continue to just touch everything. (laughs) Every single scene they are touching something. It's like stop touching everything. At some point, it's going to be like, hey, uh, you know, Chekhov, rub your face against this tree. <laughs> yeah, see what this does. Is it killing you? Oh, it killed you. Okay, now we know. <laughs> Scotty calls to say that they've now lost even more power. And hmm. also, there's some sort of beam pointed at the ship from the planet that seems to be draining their power. But still, probably nothing to worry about. So, um, this seems like a terrible thing to be happening. Um, maybe we should move the ship further away or something? Yeah, no. Okay. (laughs) McCoy stops to scan one of the thorn thingies from the flowers we saw earlier, and Spock notices that the flower is pointing towards Kirk. He pushes Kirk out of the way and takes the flower spines full in the chest. Oh no, Spock's being killed as well. McCoy injects him with something that seems to have no effect, even though he claims it should have done. Maybe it's the the stuff he injected himself with in uh, 
you know, a city on the edge of forever. Possibly. I don't. I didn't actually remember what it said. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they said the same thing, but it may as well be. Kirk orders that they beam up immediately, but it doesn't work now. Something is blocking the transporter, as well as draining all of the power out of the ship. Seems like maybe everyone's in danger and we should be more concerned. <laughs> Little bit. It doesn't particularly matter, though, because Spock wakes up with nothing more than an upset stomach. Yeah, in fact, uh, Spock makes this sort of, you know, awkward joke about... You know, McCoy's, you know, magic potions and things like that causing his stomach to turn. And McCoy says racist stuff about how if he was human, his drugs wouldn't be affecting him badly. So apparently racial insensitivity is still a problem with doctors this far in the future. Yes. Though, though I will say that, you know, maybe uh, Spock's getting kind of tired of McCoy's crap. And so that's why he's, you know, making this jab about magic potions. Yeah, he is jabbing back <laughs> a bit more, which is very illogical. Well, maybe he's experimenting. It's like, maybe if I strike back harder mccoy will just like figure out that i'm not a pushover and give up kirk tells spock that next time he can just yell and he will step out of the way of the deadly flower okay then <laughs> yep i guess that yep it was wrong to push me out of the way of the deadly deadly flower this is this weird berating that kirk does but he still says thanks all the same sort of, sort of stuff they start to speculate about how there seems to be some sort of weird planetary defense system that is affecting the ship and then clouds suddenly appear, and lightning strikes one of their other guards and vaporizes him. This seems like a bad thing to be happening here. Hmm. Yep, that's two down so far. Yes, um, hey, uh, Enterprise, mind sending down one of those shuttles to pick us up and get us the heck out of here? One of the guards, who was scouting ahead at this point, finds the village, which is just a small collection of round huts. Mm-hmm. He tries to report on what he's seen because apparently he's some- seen something that is not just the village and that we haven't seen, but the communicators are now being blocked as well. Sort of this weird static thing to say that. The guard decides that running back is the best idea, and he's very, very close to the rest of the group, yelling about something he's seen when he steps on a rock that explodes. Oh no, landmines! That's three down. Yep. <laughs> another one gone another one gone another one bites the dust in a very kind of random manner yep we've got one left here and this is only about 15 minutes into the episode yes kirk gets really really upset about how he hasn't left sooner but as spock points out he had no particular reason to like leave the entire planet before he tried and they couldn't and also he's following orders from starfleet so you don't have any responsibility kirk but i still feel guilty so he's he's Keats being upset that he didn't leave sooner, but he did have a certain amount of responsibility in telling them to take literally any precautions. Yep. <laughs> they take zero precautions on this deadly, deadly planet. Yeah, when like when they found the uh, the explodey rocks, they should have called up and say, "Hey, random guy is sent off to go check out the village. Uh, do you mind not stepping on these rocks, please?" Yeah, look out for explodey rocks. Mm-hmm. No, they didn't even do that. So, and yeah. the fire sand and the rodents of unusual size. <laughs> we are in some sort of fire swamp, aren't we? Yeah, we are in the fire swamp. <laughs> Spock detects the observer again. This time, Kirk orders Spock and Chekhov to have a very stupid-sounding argument to distract the guy while they, he sneaks around. This works for some reason, and Kirk punches the man who was watching them, who has uh, white hair and a painted red skin. But the man just starts crying. It's like, oh, you, you punched me, dude. What the hell? Yeah, Kirk calms down. Like, the guy's like, you struck me with your hand. Like, he just doesn't understand what's going on. It's yeah, so he doesn't weird. know what hitting is. Yes. 
Kirk calms down uncharacteristically and starts to ask some questions for once. Yes. Well, so, um, sorry I just punched you in the face here, but uh, hey, what's up? What's going on here? Uh, the, tell me about yourself. This man introduces himself as Akuta, the Eyes of Val. He is the leader of the Feeders of Val. Um, cool. Um, what does all that mean? I don't know. But the camera makes sure that we see the antenna that are attached to his neck in an awkward mm-hmm. zoom freeze frame. For, uh, for future reference, I think he's the only one that got those. Yeah, he is the only one with the antenna. Kirk asks to speak with Vol, but Akuta goes, Ah, I'm the only one who speaks with Vol. No one sees the great and powerful Vol. No way, no how. Basically, yeah. But he can take them to the village and give them some food. Scotty calls again. Now the ship is being physically pulled out of the sky with a tractor beam. <laughs> I'm having flashbacks to Who Mourns for Adonis. A little <laughs> so the bit. giant big hand. <laughs> they have about 16 hours before the ship burns up. Ticking clock has been introduced. Good job. Halfway through the episode already. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, everyone, everyone's going to die, except for us on the surface who might be killed by other beans. But you know. Kirk asks about Vol. Akuta tells him that Vol is all. Um, cool. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> he makes the sun rise, the birds sing, the fruit grow, general god stuff. Oh, so all-powerful uh, god, uh, god figure. Um, um, okay. And so he can up? take them to Seaval, but he's not going to want to talk to them. He does this. Kirk and Spock are led to a big stone snake mouth statue with glowing eyes. It looks fairly cheesy, but also kind of cool at the same time. It is neat, though they keep talking about how well made it is. It, it, it looks like part of the snake worshippers set from Conan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Spock says that this is probably the entrance to the underground machinery that he detected earlier. He walks towards it and is hit by a force field. It's kind of funny, this little, uh, you know, incident here at the force field, because he's like, it's like, I'm also detecting zap as he walks right into it. A force field. <laughs> like, Akuda <laughs> says that Vol sleeps, but he will awaken soon when he is hungry. This seems ominous. They're taken to the village where they immediately ask where the children are, because, you know, that's your first question when you meet people yeah you know, obviously these these people on this alien planet of a species you've never met before uh have you know you have to wonder where their kids are but the word children is unknown to the people of vol they manage to explain enough that they realize that what they mean are replacements and that replacements are unnecessary thanks to vol also vol doesn't want them to you know love or kiss each other which the crew finds Awkward and horrible, but also embarrassing, because now they might have to talk about sex in mixed company. Oh no. It's it's awkward enough when there's like just guys around in this show, but yeah. there's a lady here too. They Jeepers. couldn't explain sex to a teenager. How are they going to talk about it near a lady? <laughs> oh, my stars and garters. They give the crew flowers, uh, ask Spock's name, and then I'll start laughing at Spock's name. What kind of name is that, man? This is never explained. Maybe in their language it means something really embarrassing? Yeah, that's the only thing I could think, but it's, it must be a deleted scene or something because they never bring this up again, ever. You'd think they would at least like reference it for the ending thing. The crew is taken to their own hut where they confirm that the ship is doomed, but there's not much they can do about it. McCoy has been able to scan the people of Val, which is what they call themselves, and it is kind of like it. The people of Val. He's determined that the people of Vol do not age, do not get sick, and can, you know, live possibly thousands and thousands of years. 
but also their society has stopped progressing. Oh no, this means Kirk is allowed to violate the Prime Directive. <laughs> yeah, this is sounding very, very familiar. Yes, hmm. Everything's fine here. I yes. hate it. <sighs> Kirk and Spock go back to Val. They see that the villagers are feeding Val a ton of fruit. Oh, so this is what feeding Val is. I thought it was going to be human sacrifice. Nope, it's just fruit. Apparently, this machine runs on fruit. Hmm, so I guess it just, you know, grinds up the and extracts the sugars and you know, has a chemical furnace somewhere, and that's how it generates all its power. It could be some sort of biopowered thingy, but it's very weird that it would work this way. Yes, it, it, it's kind of amazing that the, the power uh, you can extract from this sort of stuff is, you know, minuscule compared to something that runs on antimatter that's, you know, up in orbit that's fighting. <laughs> They decide that since the force feels down, they can get closer, and they stand up. Fall's eyes glow, and they sit back down. Well, I guess Fall didn't like that, uh, our standing up in its presence. Hmm. Fock has now speculated that Vol must have at least a rudimentary level of intelligence, but also seems to need to be fed very frequently, so it probably does not have a large power reserve. That kind of makes sense. McCoy joins them and continues to hate everything because the people aren't progressing and they're serving a machine. Oh my god. <laughs> Those damn dirty machines taking taking our leadership positions in our society. Spock says that Val and the people do seem to have a symbiotic relationship where they feed him and he seems to keep everyone safe, fed, and from ever aging. So you got a basically a balanced system of, uh, you know... You know, that can perpetuate itself for potentially, you know, you know, who knows how long, and everything's kind of great for these people. And so, you know, and then you got these these enterprise schmucks coming in, and they're like, "Hey, we're gonna cause some trouble here." But McCoy goes, "But they're not advancing." What does that mean? I know, I don't know. It means they live in huts. It means it means it, colonialis- it colonialism <laughs> is being is being excused basically yep we call it go to hell kirk gets scotty to read the power levels from vol which confirms that the power is indeed fluctuating which means that spock's idea about the reserves are probably right hey hey spock what's its power level is, is it over some number yeah some largish number you're gonna yes. yell about hmm. perhaps there's nine of them anyway <laughs> Scotty also has a plan to use all the remaining power on the ship in one hail menary push for the engines to break free of the tractor beam, but it won't be ready for about 15 minutes until the ship's about to, to be destroyed. Oh yes, cutting it close, are we? <laughs> Back at the hut, Landon speculates about what would happen if someone on the planet were to accidentally die and then to need a replacement. And it's this really fun scene where a bunch of grown men are too embarrassed to talk about sex because she's a woman. Yeah, well, we can't talk about this thing that we, we all are adults enough to talk about because it's impolite. Including in the, future. the fact that this seems to be overpowering Spock's emotions because he is also embarrassed to talk about it. The power of this is so strong it is overpowering Spock's logic. Well, maybe he's still in the uh, lingering after effects of his pawn farce, so he's still kind of extra awkward. <laughs> this hilarious scene was not at all a waste of time and went nowhere you know uh my my, my notes on this scene uh i will i'm not going to read them out because 
It's like, this is just so ridiculous. I'm going to uh, write down my notes in the most lewd and, uh, you know, seemingly offensive way possible. Hey. So just, just note that as a means to sort of try to highlight just how inverse that is from, you know, what you're actually seeing on, on screen here. Later on, Chekhov and Landon are strolling through the dangerous, dangerous jungle as they talk about how beautiful it all is, but also how the ship is going down and everyone they know is going to die, but this puts Chekhov in the mood for making out. Because that's how Chekhov rolls, like, oh, death to destruction, eh, no biggie, but hey, it's pretty here, let's get the moves on. Yeah. Unbeknownst to them, they are being watched by two of the villagers who decide to copy what they're seeing. And very luckily, these happen to be villagers who are a man and a woman. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to show it on 60s television. Uh, in fact, uh, I did notice earlier uh, in the episode that uh, there seems to be about equal number of men and women in this uh, village here. Um, sort of like, you know, despite this whole not needing to have, you know, you know kids of your own because everyone's basically functionally immortal. They seem to be well well paired up. Someone get the it's a quality gif in here. <laughs> when the villagers kiss, thunder rolls, and Akuda shows up to tell them that they've made Val angry by kissing each other. And Val told me that we have to go kill the outsiders. Hmm. So, um, you, you kids here, you you making out? Uh, yeah. All right, well, God hates you now, and also we have to go murdering. Akuda gathers all the men together and demonstrates what Val told him about how you can smash people's heads with sticks. He grabs a melon and goes, this is an outsider's head, and then he smashes it with a stick. Because, see, do that. It's a very uh, hands-on demonstration sort of deal here, because apparently these folks have just never been violent, and they don't understand the concept at all. Back in the hut, Spock discusses if it is right for them to change what is effectively a well-functioning society, even though it's not perfect. But Kirk goes, no, they aren't living. They're just existing. I hate it. They're in service to a machine, and we owe it to them to interfere with their machine. Got to impose our set of values on these people from another world, one way or another. Also, we're going to use some excuse about maybe our ship going to die, but we're really kind of just making that as an excuse here, honestly. Kirk and Spock head back to Vol and try to talk to it, but instead he decides to strike Spock with lightning. And uh, because Spock is a, uh, a player character, he does not instantly die when struck by lightning, unlike the red shirts who are minions. Well, obviously, you, you get double the hit points when you're a player character. Exactly. <laughs> he just gets what McCoy says are second degree burns. It's fine, it's only second degree burns, which are, those are not okay, though. It's uh, something you're going to have to have taken care of. Yeah, you can't just... that That's bad. Okay? Second-degree mm -hmm. burns are bad. Also, this has been changed now. Those would be called partial thickness burns. I was unaware of that. Yeah, we went from first, second, and third degree to surf to uh, surface, partial thickness, and full thickness. Which I guess is very much more descriptive. Back in the village, the villagers decide to sneak up behind the last living guard, and they bonk him over the head. Oh no, is he dead? I, I don't know. Last one down. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone else just is too quick for them, though, and even Landon gets to judo a guy, which is fun. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to kick your ass, guys. Nah. Because uh, it, it is kind of a, a one-sided fight when you think about it, though, because, you know, the Enterprise crew, which seems to get in fistfights every other week, you know, versus a bunch of people that have never actually fought anyone ever. <laughs> the villagers, like, wind up getting shoved into a hut and locked in. <laughs> it's like, you guys... Cut it out. Go go in there. You've been bad. 
<laughs> Scotty tries his thing to break away from the tractor beam, but it doesn't work and the ship is doomed. It seems like it's going to work for just a moment, but then it doesn't. Kirk has a good cry about how this is all his fault and they should have left before, but now all of his guards are dead. And... But then a gong sounds and the villagers try to leave and go, hey, we need to feed Vol now. They say no, but Kirk goes, oh my god, I have an idea. Vol's hungry, that means Vol's weak. That means we could feed Vol a, a grenade, right? That's that's a better idea. <laughs> they run back to Vol and have the ship fire phasers at the force field. Akuda keeps begging to be let out to feed Vol because Vol is getting hungrier and hungrier. Vol starts to struggle to keep the field up until they start sparking and a fire lights in his mouth and then his eyes finally fade out. And Spock reports that there's no power generation left and God is dead. Hmm. Well... Guess we've killed another deity. Um, yeah, that's two gods down this season. Yes. You guys want to go get lunch? <laughs> the tractor beam is gone. The ship is not going to be destroyed. Well done. Kirk tells the village how great it is that they've killed God, because now they can have lots of sex and babies. So uh, get on with the the, uh, the, the, the the screwing here, guys. Um, you'll figure it out. One of the women asks what children are, and he says you'll find out, so she's in for a big surprise later. Yep. Back on the ship, Spock is concerned about how this story is basically Genesis from the Bible, and they've kicked the villagers out of paradise. But then Kirk goes, are you calling me the devil? Is there someone on board who looks like the devil? Mmm, Mr. Mm -hmm. Pointy Ears? The end. I don't know, I think Kirk is the devil here. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> I mean, allegorically, yes. <laughs> Without question. So anyway... So, uh, this, uh, this episode is really kind of broken up into two parts. The wander around the forest bit, and then the interact with the people of Val uh, bit. It's interesting in those two bits, because it, it very much kind of mirrors the explorer adventure story style movies that were popular at the time. Indeed, where it's like, okay, we have to get to the place... And so we're going to face all sorts of crazy dangers along the way. And then we get to the place, we encounter this strange society where they worship some sort of mystical idol and there's this stuff going on and someone's in danger and we have to go rescue them, etc., etc. The only particular thing that's missing is quicksand. Maybe they cut that bit. Maybe that's what they call, uh, you, know, you know, maybe you know, the quicksand on this planet, uh, they call Spock. <laughs> <laughs> it hits the joke. So that's the thing. This episode is very clearly meant to be some sort of weird biblical allegory mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense as one but they're doing it anyway i'd say it's maybe not fully an allegory but sort of a starting framing device in a way but they're using so much allegorical stuff with it, and they're using so much similar imagery that it's impossible not to read some of it in even though for some reason they've decided to flip it yeah the the god who is who they're like you know they have to go in and save them from the snake god instead of the snake corrupting them into being kicked out of paradise but uh, you see because they're not christians it, it's okay <laughs> yeah it's okay because of that well it's the striving thing and we've we've talked about this idea before especially as it pertains to the colonialism with mm -hmm. coming in to people who you decide are not using the land they're on properly. So it's your job to either take over for their own good, usually take over. In these stories, they like to frame it more as the 
educational side, which you would get with more kind of a missionary mindset where you're coming in and educating the people about civilization because they're too dumb to figure it out on their own. We're liberating you from your society as it is currently, from your ignorance of everything that we want you to believe. Except the really, really freaking weird thing that for some reason they keep doing in this series over and over and over, which I guess is just a response to the like, communist rhetoric of the time, but I can get to that in a second. The really weird thing they keep doing is they remove the one easy justification that you can use, which is these people are living in like squalor with disease or whatever, and we're here to give them you know, our life-saving technology and science. But they actually frame it as, you know, these people are actually living basically perfect lives. Yeah, they are living better lives than we are even because they don't get sick, they don't age. You know, what, it, like, strife and unnecessary suffering is unknown in any form. We have to give it to them because it stagnates progress. Which the only reason I can think that they keep using this narrative is the idea that if you introduce a kind of socialist ideal which would have been very demonized at the time because of the cold war rhetoric where everyone is more or less you know on equal footing and gets the ideal resources and things that that's going to stagnate the society because of a lack of competition so you know it's like here you know this whole status quo even though it works for you that's that's just inherently bad because we say so well, it's also an interestingly weird turnaround on the noble savage ideas that we've seen in a couple other places. Mm -hmm. Because you, you're supposed to have this thing with the noble savage uh, storylines where it's, it's really sad that native people's culture got destroyed because they had actually greater wisdom and connection to earth and whatever than you do. But in this one, that greater connection to earth and that better way of living is demonized so yes they are better than you but also you're better than them because the the horrible things in your society is actually what makes you great and, uh, to, to a certain extent you could it also kind of touches to you know fear of technology here because the you know connection is with a machine that's you know not necessarily directly seen uh, but uh, does affect the whole uh, planet uh, uh, around them. And uh, and so, you know, it's like you're connected with land, but the land's a machine and thus evil? Well, they're so very much <laughs> touching on, and they, they do reference it directly at one point, and it's something that they have come up with a few times, of just this, what if you become so dependent on machines? It's basically pre-Black Mirror. It's, you know, what if the machines were God? Oh no! <laughs> what if God but cell phones? The uh, t t t but you know, in something like Black Mirror, a lot of it you know kind of comes down to how th that interdependency uh, affects the human condition. Well, in this particular case, in you know Star Trek here, it's well the people here seem kind of okay with the status quo. They're not depressed. They're they actually seem kind of happy. They're they're curious. They're you know doing their thing. You know they're. Sure, they got a, like a, a job to do of going to feed the big, you know, giant snakehead thing, but you know that's about it. It kind of reminds me of this short story from Isaac Asimov's *I Robot*, but the the last of the short stories in that collection, uh, one of the reoccurring characters who's a computer scientist. I guess, I guess she's kind of a robot psychologist, as they frame Calvin? it in there. Yeah, Calvin. 
uh, she basically discovers that there's these three there's these three super intelligent AI supercomputers that are ostensibly helping the world governments run things. They were originally designed to kind of manage economic systems, but they wound up being so good at doing that that they kept giving them more and more responsibility, and now they're basically helping the humans run everything. She essentially discovers that, in fact, they've ceded over so much power to these three AI computers that they are basically running the entire planet. The humans have absolutely no say in what's going on whatsoever. She decides not to tell anyone, because things are going so well, and no one noticed. You know, uh, I guess this kind of, um, you know, comes to the question, uh, which, I, you know, this episode kind of made me think about, is the, you know, concept of self-determination, is the, uh, the, the freedom to select your own government. Uh, and sometimes it can be quite overt, let's, get, let's go have a revolution and, you know, kick the British out or whatever. Uh, or, you know, it can be, you know, as your, your example here, a little bit more subtle, where it's sort of a series of choices you make over time that evolves a society in a certain direction. But there's a, there's an interesting thing, and I've, I've been having this talk over and over with some other people because the, the current place that we're in politically, everyone talks about social change and revolution and whether or not we should be doing it. There's, there's no particular reason for revolution if everyone is happy. Yeah. <laughs> If if everyone if everyone in the society is having their basics needs met and is content, why would anyone actually want to change things? The reason yeah, to have societal exactly. change is when part of the society is happy and part of the society is not. You know, and so so even if you have that one guy who's kind of like you know what what do you what do you fight against? Like oh what do you got? You know, there's something that's making him unhappy. He's just not being honest about it. What's what what that is. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the lack of, you know, you know, complete harmony is that somebody's going to be wanting a, a change here. Uh, and, you know, just sort of a, a matter of how much change is re, uh, required to, you know, you know, you know, push us to a, a state where more people are cool with the situation. The only thing that you're getting in this episode and all the other episodes that we've seen with colonialist themes is just the inherent disregard for the values of another society. Yeah. <laughs> in this case, it's like, yeah, what self-determination? We're going to basically completely, you know, you know, force you guys into effectively a complete cultural revolution here by just sort of imposing our will on you because of our own reasons. And, well, you know, what the, you know what the, whatever those reasons happen to be in the time, you know, you know change episode to episode, uh, but they are still external uh, forces being applied to the society. Do they change episode to episode? Because this is at least the fifth time they've mentioned that a society is not advancing or is not striving or suffering enough. Uh, the, the, the bit with Landrew uh, was... The society wasn't advancing. Yeah, it was, was, not, was not advancing. And was the ship actually in, like, in much danger there? Or could they just have left at one point? I forget. They probably could have left. All right, they should have done that. <laughs> See, the... The Landrew episode, at least they demonstrated that some of the people involved were not happy. So, you know, they, you know, they had some, uh, you know, reason to, it's like, well, maybe we should help these people out, kind of. But there's still a, you know, a, a matter of, you know, you're going to be, you know, exercising uh, this external force on a society that maybe isn't necessarily ready for this kind of change or interested in it. And yeah, you might have dissidents, you know, and it kind of comes down to that question, are you going to be an interventionist in this sort of internal conflict or not? 
and that kind of you know you know, you know implies during the original series here that this thing called the that that it becomes, starts to matter much more later in the later Trek series, the Prime Directive doesn't really kind of matter at all to these people. Hasn't existed yet. Yes. It's been sort of mentioned, but yeah, it's it's sort of like just nebulous. Yeah, everyone keeps bringing up the Prime Directive in relation to the original series. It has been mentioned once. It said the Prime Directive of non-interference. And the only thing that we know about it is that it doesn't apply in this particular situation. That is literally the only thing we know. And so we don't have to think about it ever again. This episode gives you a particular problem. Because this is actually the very first time they have done anything like this when they have encountered a species that has been framed as non-human. Yes. Every other time that they've encountered a society like this, it's either human enough that it's impossible to tell whether they're supposed to be human or not, or it's a, like, long-lost colony or something. Yeah. So when you are dealing with, like, in the Paradise episode... Like, as much as I disagree with the idea that they should have changed, like, interfered with people who were living idyllic lives they were happy with, at the end, the humans were like, oh, you're right, we're, our minds were clouded and we weren't striving and succeeding and whatever. You could make an assumption that they would have the same societal values that you do because you both started from the same society. It assumes much about a monolithic sort of culture for humanity, which isn't true at all. But yeah, if you assume that is in universe how people are in that century, then I guess it works out kind of. This one is a completely different culture that you had nothing to do with and showed up and went, you're doing culture wrong. Great. Which was a very accepted philosophy until very, very recently. It even mm-hmm. it goes back really, really far to like the the old like Hobbes, Rousseau, Kant, like the the old old uh, Western philosophers, starting back in like the English Civil Wars. Well, there's this idea that there's this group of people who are usually the aristocracy, who either through originally breeding, later the possession of wealth, have proven themselves to be the better stewards of society than everyone underneath them. So anything they say should happen should happen because obviously they have proven themselves to be worthy of being above others. I have acquired a kingdom for myself via, you know, military arms or, you know, later on, you know, a bunch of purchasing and economic maneuvers. So obviously I know how everyone else should live. Oh. And you're working with a very similar system here because you're supposed to make this immediate assumption that because... The humans are more technologically advanced. They necessarily know how a society should be run. Because we got the spaceship. We, we know what's up for all things, for everyone, forever. Which, coming from our perspective, even now, you have to take a step back in order to actually think about this. Because we have been basically primed our entire lives to think of the only particular thing that a society should ever be working towards to be technological and economic progress. So if you encounter a society that has not made the same amount of technological progress as you, you are predisposed to think of them as less advanced and backward, even though they are possibly living in a slightly better way than you are. Yeah, we need to understand that 
you know, it's our perspective that these are the things that we value. That's why we're thinking this as opposed to this is actually how the world works. I do think this kind of ties into this other thing that I was looking at recently, which was talking about just the general difference in two kinds of ways of thinking with either everyone should be more or less equal to make decisions as kind of a distributed system of people, or it's completely right and proper that some people should be ruling over others. That whole uh, hierarchy business again. And this kind of presupposes think, the hierarchy. I think we saw the same video. <laughs> <laughs> this, this presupposes the hierarchy system. Because in order for this group to come in and say that I know better than you and I get to make decisions for your society, presupposes that it is right that their position in this hierarchy makes them better stewards of this environment than the people who live there. Yeah, not only better stewards, but also that they have some sort of special right in order to impose their will upon these other people. Yeah, the very fact that they get to decide this, they they have this like half discussion. They never actually have a discussion in this show. They like bring up, hey, maybe this is a problem. And Kurt goes, nope, I know better than you. Haha. <laughs> I'm going to make a command decision to ignore this conversation entirely and make my own decisions. Bye. Yeah. Also but if you look at it, the very fact that they even have the discussion of should we change this society, like... Why do they even assume that is a decision they should be making? That's a good question. <laughs> you know, uh, so I was uh, thinking, you know, uh, watching some uh, stuff in, uh, about uh, Voyager and things like that uh, recently, and uh, some some of the weirdest of the prime directive conversations they go there. That uh, you know, that you know, people at that stage of Star Trek are like, yeah, we'll we'll die in order to avoid violations of the prime directive here. Well, this is very much a situation where the option is they could die to basically preserve this uh, this uh, society, but they don't even really consider, you know, give that a moment's thought that maybe, you know, preservation of this way of life is of, uh, you, know, you know, inherent value on its own, that these people have as much right to their their way of life as, you know, we do at all. It's like, no, we're just going to be, you know, using this excuse in order to sort of completely turn over the civilization destroy the thing that maintains it and possibly dooms them all to death <laughs> because 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 we because we know what's up and we're going to be just sort of say this is what's going to happen it's very interesting to think about it from that perspective because if you turn it around the even the very fact that the people who already live there are trying in any way to defend their existing way of life is framed as bad so, you know these people don't want to have their you know, their, their, their god entity that takes care of them, you know, displeased or really, you know, destroyed what's going to happen. Uh, and the god entity realizes, oh, these people are interfering with my society. I need to get rid of them one way or another. Yeah, they don't even go into this, but it's pretty obvious that these, you know, newcomers are seen as a direct threat as they turn out to be. Yep. And instead of, you know, Kirk and companies trying to figure out a way to communicate with the uh, you know, uh, Val here and like going to Akuta is like, okay, here's the situation. We want to leave. How could we leave? We don't even try that. It's like, oh, we have to figure out some way to just get around the problem as opposed to confronting it directly and like asking. It's not even how do we leave. They have at least three discussions where they say we are morally obligated to interfere with this society. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, come on, people. 
Yeah, well, uh, this, uh, another thing that sort of I started thinking about while uh, watching this episode was that during this period where this episode uh, was filmed uh, was also sort of in the you know, uh, uh, period of time where something the, the end stage of colonialism was sort of you know in process in a number you know parts of the world at least hypothetically uh, the whole uh, de. Uh, de- uh, colonization of Africa, where a bunch of countries are becoming independent, things like that. Want to talk about that at all? <laughs> <laughs> we can. I mean, the decolonization of Africa was largely a European thing. Yes. It's always rubbed the United States the wrong way that we were not as big of an imperial power. So maybe as, you know, in some of the the attitudes being shown off here is that, you know, as Europe was sort of getting over that sort of stuff... Uh, so, so to some degree on the, the prompting of the U S in fact, you know, in the U S it's sort of like, all right, we're not, we're just gonna, we don't, we're not being sort of encouraged to sort of abandon this sort of uh, dream of a massive world spanning empire. So we're just not going to, you know, change our attitudes on this. And so it still is being presented in this sort of like, okay, we're going to be sort of telling people what to do as outsiders. And that's all cool guys without any sort of, you know, much uh, depth of thought into it. Well, this period was beginning what you could call the American expansion into imperialism. Indeed. We were messing around in South America. We had the war in Vietnam, which mm-hmm. was going to be an imperialist expansion, except it didn't work out that way. Uh, same thing in Korea later on. And then much more recently in our lifetimes in the Middle East. And so it's a sort of a you know, a preview perhaps of, you know, stuff that was happening at the time, as well as that was going to, you know, become much more of a long lasting, you know, issue, uh, you know, as things, uh, uh, you know, transpired. And of course I have to blame Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson for a lot of this, but you know, that's a whole other conversation. Well, there's this very interesting, uh, thing. If it, it mirrors this episode very well, there's a, uh, there's a show on, on, uh, WNYC, which is the New York kind of NPR affiliate, mm-hmm. uh, called On the Media, and they ran a story a few weeks ago talking about the whole uh, thing going on with Venezuela. Yes, and they had a guy on who I can't remember the name of at this minute. I'm sorry about like not being able to add, properly attribute things. That he had this this kind of discussion on the stages of American imperialism in South America. And you kind of have a very similar thing going on in this particular episode and in all of their kind of colonialization episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that's different is you don't start with the corporate interests. Yeah. So you have this, this through line of first you have a corporate interest in a South American country. That country's government starts to interfere with the corporate interest profits. Hey, ben- hey, banana company, don't do that thing. So in this case, you could call that kind of the planetary threat to the crew. Mm-hmm. There's a threat to some entity that's affiliated with the United States, or in this case, the Federation. Then you start to kind of demonize the existing governmental system. Go, oh my god, they're horrible. Look how bad this governmental system is. Uh, you destabilize it so that things start going bad in that country, which in this one they did. They started to mess with the existing structure of things and make things start go bad for the people. Mm -hmm. Then right at the end, you go, 
oh my god, I care about the suffering of these people so much, we have to go in and interfere to save them. We're going to be you know, bringing them a better society that we screwed up in the first place. But, you know, it's going to be all great, guys. And then you do your thing, and you make it a better place for you and your governmental interests, and then you leave saying, look how much we've helped these people. And then you don't realize, oh, the, uh, you know, like the, the, the small collection of people here. This is like maybe like 15, 16, 20 people, maybe. This, this is not a society that's likely to survive a generation, honestly, especially without the, you know, uh, you know, uh, know, institutional knowledge of even how to maintain their lives without the assistance of this uh, supercomputer. Well, they certainly don't uh, mention it explicitly in this episode, but isn't it convenient that they're going to have this paradise planet full of resources with no one living on it in about 10 years? Yep. <laughs> in fact, uh, you know, isn't the whole pre- reason they came here originally is that there are some strange sensor readings that they really gone, you know, they were sent here to check out? Yes. It's like, hmm. It's like, there might be something interesting here. Hint, hint, hint. So overall, it's just colonialism. And it's yep. very bothersome how often that... Uh, Star Trek of this period is drawing parallels between this kind of colonialism and Native American imagery, given how a lot of other television at the time and movies at the time were still using Native Americans as kind of nameless canon father villains who you're supposed to automatically side against in order to kind of justify the stealing of their territory. We mentioned Westerns earlier, and it's like, oh yeah, and uh, we got these, we got all of the, the engines are captured our cow train yeah gotta go fight them now yeah but it's right and good and proper because you are the you know you are in the right and they are trying to kill you who are in the right so yeah, you know they're stealing your your your, your train man out of cows so so obviously you can ignore the whole steal their land thing and and thus you are in the right ah there's ones you mixed too many metaphors and you wound up with people who are like literally childlike because they've been being taken care of by a machine for too long. So even when they do fight back, it's comically ineffective. Yes. Even though you've lost a good quarter of the people that you brought down there. I, 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 so I think in the end for this one, I think uh, Val made one mistake of not instantly vaporizing all of them the moment they beamed down. Yeah. That would have been a much better idea. I guess he would have had to eat too much fruit for that. Yeah. Hmm. I guess the the uh, the death ray uh, lightning storm uh, only you know can only work for so much, so long at a time. Yeah. Well, that's all I've got. We went on about colonialism for half an hour. Eh, we do that sometimes. Yeah. I, I guess my sort of parting thoughts is that it is. It, you know, colonialism is a is a attitude that's still ongoing. It's just getting much better at hiding itself. It's, oh, yes, we're doing a humanitarian intervention, despite, you know, us causing all the problems in the first place. Well, we have to take care of these problems now because you're basically forced us to consider this position as by the previous actions leading up to it. Um, You know, and in the episode, you know, Kirk's like, oh, we have to destroy Val because we came to this planet from across the stars in order to, you know, you know, you know, follow the the rules of our Starfleet. Has its own interests, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we didn't basically skedaddle the moment we realized, oh, there's people living here that are a pre warp civilization. Maybe we should just not bother them. <laughs> Colonialism is good, and 
that is all. Thank you. At least Kirk feels bad about some of the stuff he does this episode at one point. He should really feel bad about all of it, honestly, though. Should feel bad about a lot of things. <laughs> yes. Should, should we get more silly then? Yeah. I think it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey everybody, it's time for the award set portion of the show where we got some uh, all the points tallied up and our various contestants have managed to pull off some victories of various sorts. Our first award goes to Scotty for, you know, it's the Scotty Talk Award. Yeah, the second appearance of this one for a bunch of nonsensical techno babble that doesn't really make sense even when you think about Star Trek a lot. Where does he win, Gepwin? Scotty wins some minimum level of safety precautions. They could have, like left earlier with the ship breaking down and not been in this situation. Yes, uh, tractor beam or death beam or whatever that's coming up from the planet probably has some sort of limited range. Maybe go outside of that and just come by to pick up the away team at some later point. Or, you know, just beam them up whenever it's convenient and say, hey, Captain, sorry to take you out of there, but we're all going to die, so we decided not to let that happen. Our second award is the Teaching Aliens How to Love Award, which goes to Chekhov and Yeoman Landon for, well, basically trying to teach them how to love through sort of demonstration and accidents and awkward and creepy kind of sounding conversations. What does they win, Gepwin? They win a 50s educational video that they would have been shown in school so that they can give these aliens the same level of sexual education that apparently the writers of this show had. Huh, I don't think that's going to be very effective, but eh, it's better than nothing, right? Our third award is the Sufficiently Advanced Aliens Award, which goes to Val for meeting at least the minimum threshold to be considered an all-powerful god by the people of Val. What does Val win, Gapwin? Val should win more because he also meets the minimum threshold for being considered a god by the Enterprise crew, as they said... A couple episodes ago, because being able to shoot lightning and vaporize people was all they needed for Apollo. That's quite right, Gepwin. I'd also vote for uh, Val for also being declared the sovereign uh, planetary government of this particular place. They really should have tried to negotiate better. Hmm. Our final award is the Tragedy of Errors Award, which goes to Kirk because at least he feels kind of guilty about some of the pointless silly deaths and allowing them to all get this whole situation in the first place. And, you know, that... He should really feel more bad about that whole overthrowing of the alien government, though. Hmm. Anyway, Gepwin, what does he win? Eric wins. They need some more creative deaths. If you're going to kill off four or five people with random planetary things, you can't use the same one twice. Yes, two lightning bolts is too much. And that's the award portion of the show, folks. Hope every all our winners are enjoying their new gifts and uh, make, make good use of them as they go forward in their deep unknowns or the collapse of their societies. Yes. Yes, they're all going to die, so, you know, I guess the Enterprise can come back and grab the prizes from the Vol people. Yes, <laughs> we'll just harvest more. Oh, hmm, it's getting more depressing again. Oh, let's let's end this portion of the show, eh? Got Thank you for joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! <laughs> Thank you.
Next time, we're going from a biblical allegory about colonialism to a allegory about nuclear weapons and how they're going to destroy everything. Hmm. This seems like something we want to avoid. Next episode is called The Doomsday Machine, which is not uh, an unknown one. I think I've seen this once a long time ago. I'm pretty sure I've seen this uh, at least once myself, or maybe a couple of times, uh, though it has been quite some time. I do remember the uh, the way it ends. So. I don't remember the ending, so yeah. All I remember is the big old evil machine worm-looking thing. So a worm that doesn't really wiggle, but it floats through space and, and kills things. Yeah, it's I just runaway evil weapon thing. We get, we get a lot of these plots after the Cold War. It's like the, the changeling, except it's intentionally trying to murder things. Yeah, definitely stop building world-ending weapons, everybody. That's your message for this episode. Uh, right. wait, wait, wait a moment. Is this going to be another, you know, what has science done sort of plot again? Uh, if they if they manage to get that far, I don't know. I guess we'll find out then. <laughs> yes, we'll find out how well they handle any of these themes next time on Watches of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, that's no moon, that's a killer space word robot. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Morris Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>